that's really maybe the art of living a good life is being able to do both of those, to really live with intention and, and also with openness. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Salo. And this <laughs> did not say <laughs> this yesterday. Okay. Would you, What's today? It's like Wednesday to morning. <laughs> What's that? No, we're gonna we're gonna go with it. We're gonna go with it. Okay, go with it's, what? it's in your heart. What's you in can my feel heart? it. Okay, and this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a self improved life, a good life. And in this podcast, we're talking about stress. Anyone out here feeling stress? I mean, I'm a philosopher. We don't get stressed that much. Well, we stress out about existence. Rudy, you've got plenty of stress as a lawyer. I do. We go into that. <laughs> we do, I do. It's funny. If there was ever an episode where I know a lot more than um, than maybe the average bear, it's this episode just because of my familiarity and use of CBT, i.e. cognitive behavioral therapy, having to use it in order to get through the horror that was law school. Law, law school. <laughs> See, I, my, the, the stress is affecting my speech. I can barely even speak properly. Because when I think of law school, uh, the stress starts to rise again. But thankfully, with the use of CBT, I was able to get through it and eventually be a moderately normal person. Yeah, we learn how it works, how to pay attention to your thoughts. We learn how to let go of control and really what happiness is. When you say pay attention to your thoughts, it's very interesting that you bring that up because we get into how thoughts are just thoughts. They don't necessarily mean anything. If you go down the rabbit hole of, oh my God, I just had this thought. Oh my God, what does that mean? Oh my God, I'm a bad person. It's this crazy rabbit hole that you can go down, that your mind wants you to go down, wants you to chase, because your mind is an asshole. And we analyze that and use that term on this show. So if you're struggling at all with stuff that's in your mind and you're questioning your sanity or questioning yourself, listen to this show. Your mind is a beautiful, great thing, but it's also an asshole. <laughs> and our guest has written for Psychology Today. He also has courses on therapy and he's written several books. We're talking mainly about his book on CBT, Seth Gillahan. You can check out our Patreon. I posted information so you can learn more about him in addition to getting the links in the show show notes. Okay, let's talk about stress, CBT, and happiness with Dr. Seth Gillahan. Seth, welcome to Good Is In The Details. I really have enjoyed your book, Mindful Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, A Simple Path to Healing, Hope, and Peace. Now, Seth, is this really a simple path? <laughs> what, is the, what is this simple? Is well, it a yeah. simple path? It's a great question, and, and thanks for having me on. Pleasure. I'm glad to be able to talk with you and Rudy. Um, yes, yeah, it is really simple. It, you know, it reminds me of another another book I wrote, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy mm. in Seven Weeks. And of course, people ask me seriously, can you do CBT in seven weeks? So it's a similar answer that the learning is simple, or you know, can be done in the case of the other book in seven weeks. And then from there, it's really a lifetime of of applying and refining and probably more than anything, remembering, you know, re remembering the things that are helpful to us that we want to apply and that like, oh yeah, there's a thing I can do where I don't take my thoughts so seriously. Oh yeah. I think it's all really simple and not easy. Actually, I like the, I think that that's a perfect, it's all really simple, not easy. Let's give our listeners a background. What is cognitive behavioral therapy in the first place? It's a type of therapy, as the name suggests. 
that focuses on your thoughts, that's the cognitive part, and your behaviors, that's the behavioral part. Super simple idea that the, the things that you tend to think often aren't that helpful. So we think things that aren't true, or we think things that are true, but we exaggerate them, or our minds leave out certain things. With this more of a kind of deliberate approach of recognizing what our minds are telling us, and then taking a closer look to see if those things are actually true, we can kind of sidestep a lot of suffering that we would otherwise experience. For example, if, I, if I'm if i you know, talking to you now and, and my mind is saying something like, uh, Gwendolyn looks like she's um, confused or maybe bored. This is going terrible. I don't know what I'm talking about. I have nothing to say. I mean, some of that might be true, but it's all just a story that my mind made up. But if I buy into it, then I'm going to start tripping over my words and cutting myself off. And I'm going to have a lot happening that's not actually happening right now, which is different from the, yeah, from just being here talking with you. Yeah, Seth, is, is a simple way to say this, and, and I'm going to tell you as a practitioner as a, of CBT, going back to my times in, in law school, it's a simple way to say this. Our minds are actually little assholes. And we kind of have to <laughs> learn how to ignore our minds. I mean, I'm sorry. That's how that's I. That's a technical. No, no, that's the that's the Rudy's technical thing. Because I'm like, oh my god, my mind is a, just a jerk, and I really need to learn how to ignore it. I, I, I'm sorry, I am the simpleton on the show. But is that one simple way to say it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people can relate to that idea. That I, I mean, someone once described their mind as being an. an I'm guessing I can say anything on this podcast. Well, yeah, anyway, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so they said their mind is a fucking fuck. Like that was oh, that was her description of her mind. I love it. The only caveat I have with that is that I think it can be easy for a lot of us to see through the thoughts that our minds are telling us, but then to just push things back a level to be like, why do I have a mind that's so messed up? Like, what is wrong with my mind? And the subtext is, what's wrong with me that I can't make my mind stop doing this? I tend to encourage people toward a, a kind of compassionate response to their minds. Like, of course, you know, your mind is looking out for you the best. It knows how to. This, this is the one. It has like one button. You know, it's the alarm button and it, that's what it's pushing. It's not trying to hurt you. It's actually trying to protect you. And yet we don't have to take those thoughts so seriously. So, but whatever works for someone, I think is great. So I hate my mind. There's not a lot of love there, but I'm trying to produce the love, and I'm sure we'll talk about that on this show. But if we can go to yeah. the reason why the mind is an asshole, is the root of it because of uh, you know human beings' evolution, fight or flight? We kind of have developed this way in order to survive. Is that one of the reasons why our minds are assholes? Yeah, I think that's a huge reason, maybe the biggest reason. Yeah, so if your mind is always telling you, for example, to think about the worst case scenario or like what could go wrong, all the worried what ifs that almost never actually happen, but still, you know, we can have these this constant stream of worries. That's there to help us think about potential problems, to preempt them, to avoid them, to solve them. The survival part of our minds, I think it's fair to say, doesn't care about our happiness. All it cares about is getting our genes into the next generation and that can happen whether or not we're feeling tranquil. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more that our minds actually don't care about our happiness. That's some other part of us that care about it. Now, imagine this, Seth. Uh, let, me, let me paint a picture for you. So obviously, I have an asshole mind. Obviously, I have whatever is wrong with me. And then, and then I go to law school where they teach you to think about all day long the worst case scenario and to try to solve for it. So you can imagine 
the damage that is in that is inside of me right now. Can you can you feel it through the uh, through my through the microphone? Well, I was going to say earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say earlier. I think law school is a great time to start CBT. If if not, you know, around the same time you're studying for the LSAT because. It's such a common experience in law school to amplify those natural tendencies. You know, I've worked with lawyers. I've been grateful that they, you know, I outsource that worry part. They're worrying about that. And then they can just tell me what I, what I need to be thinking about. So I don't have to do all that preemptive worrying. Man, you are so true. I do teach law school and I do feel like that's a part of my penance. Like I feel like, uh, I don't know, whatever I've done in my past life, I need to make up for it by trying to help these, these students from what I've learned. But I absolutely agree, and I'm, I'm serious. I'm going to take this show, probably going to make millions upon millions of dollars with it, Seth, because I love the idea that you should not go to law school until you learn cognitive behavioral therapy. Because I, cause there are mm. a lot of law students when they get in there, man, that like they have like little mental breakdowns. Because it's right. because like maybe your whole life you've been able to keep the the asshole mind at bay, but when you go to law school and they teach you to quote unquote think like a lawyer, you are actually supposed to think about the worst case scenario and then plan for it. Otherwise, you'll be committing malpractice. And like, so how do you separate that part of your brain? For, you know, when you're working on behalf of your client versus your own life. You need cognitive behavioral therapy in order to live a normal life as a lawyer. That's what I think. Yeah, well, no, I'm sure that resonates with a lot of people. I was brought in to give a couple, I don't know, one or two talks at a, a law school near me not that long ago, I guess just before the pandemic, and then to create a brief online course for students at a law school for exactly the reasons you're describing, Rudy. It is such a challenge to, I think people who are attracted to law on average probably tend toward the you know, very analytical, very cognitive style. So a very strong thinking style. Their minds are probably very active, very tenacious and great at imagining things and, and seizing on ideas and holding on to them. That's a real gift. I think it's a gift that people can offer their clients. And I, I feel like I'm cursed, but thank you. Thank you for calling it a gift, man. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it, it seems like both, you know, it's the idea of a, of a wheel as being, if one side of the wheel is going up, the other side's going down. It's kind of like the gift for others is, is also a, there's a cost. There's a real cost. And the thing is when we get into the mindfulness part, I think a lot of this will be relevant to doing what you described to holding on to that gift and using it as you need to, because a kind of like Kesara Sarah attitude as an attorney is probably not going to serve your clients so well, but also not not having to be miserable in the process. I've heard people say, you know, you need to like when you are healing, you need to feel, not just think your way through things. And I have to admit, I don't entirely understand. And maybe in a way, I'm kind of like Rudy. I mean, in philosophy, we're looking at the structure of arguments and evidence and what is the logic. And so I have a hard time understanding what is meant by you have to feel instead of think your way through something. So mm. what does that mean? <laughs> like, how does one do that? <laughs> I yeah. don't understand. I think there are three very similar people, it sounds like, on this call. <laughs> All of us think have very strong thinking styles. And that, I mean, it's, it's a Western tendency, but uh, we may be higher on that trait than the average person. We often have the experience without realizing it. The whole of our experience is happening from, from the neck up or really, you know, somewhere centered around our eyes, like, you know, this focus on our heads and our thoughts and our brains. 
what our brains are really good at doing is limiting the information that comes in at filtering so that we can you know, focus on what's relevant because we can only process small number of bits of information at a time. So that's, it's really useful on the one hand. On the other hand, we're missing things like stress signals that our body is giving us. I know I missed those for years, just kept you know, soldiering on to work and, and it was getting these little whispers of like, you know, something's maybe not right here, Seth, or my body is telling me I'm not doing so well here. And I was like, shut up. That's not what we're doing now. We're going to work and everything is fine. So just be quiet and serve me like you're supposed to. But if we pay attention to, to what's happening in our bodies, it's funny saying this, I, I'm used to people saying this to me and I'm like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. I always forget about that. And, but saying it now, I can, I can understand how it's, it's a difficult bridge to make if we're so used to being in our heads and someone saying the body has so much wisdom that's available if we're listening, if we're tuned into what's happening just on a, on a raw experiential physical level. I think we can only really buy that on an experiential level. I don't think that my saying that necessarily translates into like, ah, okay, yes, what have I been doing thinking all this time? I need to be you know, tuning in to the wisdom of my physical body. So I, I think the best way to find out is just to spend some time doing mind-body practices, ones that bring us kind of back into ourselves. But if you think about everything that your body is doing all the time, like the stuff it knows. Like when we get sick, like how do you heal? How do you recover from, you know, a, a simple cold? Well, wait, are we, ta- are we talking about a man cold or like a real cold? Because I tell you, a man cold, I just, I mean, I just, <laughs> I just bitch and moan and bitch and moan. My, my wife just complains. I mean, <laughs> yes, you mean a normal human being. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, they're, they're similar, but with but man colds need a lot more <laughs> head rubbing to recover from my understanding. A lot more poor you, there, there. That's what usually gets me through. But yeah, I was just struck by this today. Just everything that the body knows, like like to how to process food. You know, we can throw anything into our body pretty much and it does something with it. Let me challenge you a little bit on that, Seth, because I'll tell you sometimes, where does that come into play mm-hmm. with panic attacks or like where body is overly anxious and your heart starts to beat really, really fast and you actually think it's a fight or flight situation because it was made up in your mind? That's a great question. I mean, one thing I would say is that the same sensations can be interpreted really differently. So your body may be, you know, your heart's pounding, your breath is is coming fast, you're sweating. What am I describing? I mean, it could be someone having a panic attack, it could be someone having an ecstatic sexual experience, right? And, and your body maybe I was thinking. Jesus Christ, I knew you I knew you were gonna say something. You know what? I actually shut up there because I was like, she's not she's not she's not gonna say something about S E X word, but sorry, there's an ongoing joke. Seth Seth said it first joke on this show that I'm not allowed to we're not allowed to talk about sex, but Gwen's obsessed with it. I'm like, that sounded I'm like, that sounded quite nice. Seth, please go on. Please Gwen, mute yourself. Okay. I'll be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. So, so there are different interpretations of the same things. One person might be thinking, oh yeah, that's exactly how I felt at the movie theater when I was in the middle of the row and there's so many people and it was hot and I couldn't get out and I was having a panic attack and someone else is thinking like, oh yeah, that's what I experienced last night. Yeah. Tell me more. You know, I'm getting excited. (laughs) Easy one. So it does seem to come back to the mind, like what the mind makes of it. If the mind says like, uh, wow, that's an exciting experience. That's really cool. That's going to be a really different reaction than saying like, oh no, what's happening? I'm having a heart attack. I'm going to have a stroke. I'm going to know is, you know, having had many panic attacks in my lifetime, so much of it is about what we attribute those basic symptoms to. And the the alarm 
I mean, to some extent, the alarm, well, the alarm is not only in the symptoms, it's also in what we make of them. What do you think about, there is so much discussion, we're far more aware of psychology. How do you get through what is pop psychology and what is really helpful? Are we overdoing it on discussions where people are maybe shying away from responsibility of behavior by saying, oh, there is this thing? Or is the talk always good? Is Can we be putting too much into it where we're like putting our lives on hold? Or I, I don't know, sometimes Rudy and I have kind of wondered about that before of um, what's the difference between, I guess, the medium, the, the right amount of understanding the possibilities of therapy and psychology? Or are we overdoing it and talking about our feelings too much? Or are Rudy and I just grumpy Gen Xers talking about it? <laughs> like kids today in their feelings. Right. Yeah. What's the balance? Yeah. Grumpy Gen Xer. Isn't oh, that redundant? Do you know what's ridiculous? <laughs> I've actually I've never heard that before, but it's so true. We are grumpy as a generation, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, as, yeah. as, as one of, yeah, again, also a Gen Xer myself, I think a balance is, is the right idea. We can kind of fetishize awareness and self, well, we can call it self-awareness, but really, or self-knowledge, but maybe it's more just a, a kind of preoccupation with ourselves and our mental states and always kind of taking our emotional temperature and, and how am I doing and how am I reacting to this? And an awareness of those things is great. But as, as you ask the question, it I mean, I, I can imagine a focus on those things to such an extent that there's no sort of and then that comes after it. My sense is that we want to be well physically and mentally and emotionally so that we can you know, be engaged in life, so that we can do the things we care about, so that we can connect to people around us. If those considerations like you know, my mental health and my whatever, if that's becoming an obstacle to connection, then yeah, or, or if it's becoming a kind of a barrier in the sense of, I mean, I had a, I had a guest on my own podcast recently who, who was you know, kind of joking about someone saying, like, you know, everyone needs to shut up because I'm trying to meditate. Well, like maybe <laughs> yeah. we've sort of lost the thread there. So I, I think we can we can use anything as as a tool to just kind of keep doing what we've always been doing while calling it something else. So yeah, I think I think a balance is good. Yeah, I was it, something that struck me was that my mother was going through some items in the kitchen and she held up a towel and she was trying to get my attention. She said, does this have any significance? And so I looked at the towel and it had embroidered on it, more self-love. Now, my mom is of the silent generation. She did not know what that meant. And I said, oh, this, mm. it means a care of the self. And I realized for her generation, when younger people are talking about pretty much any generation after that, I was talking about self-care and self-love and more time for the self. It does not register what that means, that it is a new way of talking about, even talking about mental health in general is something that is new. For her, she'd be like, you just get on with your life and you just get on with your work. Bad things happen. You just keep going. And it seems like there's just been this collective pause for us to say, wait a minute, how am I doing meditation, things like that? What have you noticed in different generational awarenesses about mental health? Mm. Well, yeah, there are some general trends. Obviously, there's a lot of variation around these these trends, you know, in terms of individuals. But, you know, working with people who are in their 70s or 80s, yeah, I think it's it can often be a kind of new language to learn mm -hmm. for a lot of people like, oh, it, it doesn't necessarily feel that comfortable to think about one's emotions or even to consider like, oh, I'm having thoughts that may or may not be true. Just such a different perspective that probably you know, as young, you know, younger generations, even 
us Gen Xers are probably more kind of fluent in. I, I guess like technology, right? That it's sort of these, some of these mental health are kind of like a new technology that a lot of us grew up with. Others learned about them in the middle of their life. And then some, you know, feel quite out of their element with. And then, you know, people roughly in my age, you know, middle age or so, um, there definitely seems to be more of a, it's, it's funny the way I'm, I'm setting this up. It feels like I'm going to suggest that you know, then there's our generation, which was very balanced, you know, right in the middle, <laughs> had a nice, healthy awareness of these things. But, you know, interesting, we were raised for the most part by generations who, to some extent, weren't as aware, weren't as, as familiar mm-hmm. with these types of things in everyday life. Certainly there, you know, my grandparents' generation, World War II generation was was not, didn't think about these things, I don't believe, nearly as much as we do now. I don't think happiness was that important. I think that there were roles that were set up and you fulfilled those roles and the happiness was you fulfilling that role. I don't think that it had to do with an internal, what do you want to do? And it's like, no, you, you, this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For better and for worse. And now a quick break to tell you about Clean Skin Labs is a small woman-owned business with an innovative patent-pending new skincare tool. When Rana, the founder, also guest of Good is in the Details, check out the Wisdom of Women Entrepreneurs. When she could not find a touch-free applicator to apply steroid cream to her son, she designed and manufactured her own. The Lunascent Touch-Free Applicator Massager is now a versatile and multi-purpose skincare tool that allows for application of any type of skincare and for massaging and depuffing without using fingers. Perfect. The applicator saves money and improves the health of the skin by preventing contamination of skincare products, preventing unwanted absorption into fingers, and preventing degradation of active ingredients. It is a hygienic and reusable tool that can be cooled and warmed for better absorption and massaging. No fingers, no germs, no waste. Check out the notes to get your link to Luna Essence. Good is in the details is partnered with Newsly.me. It's that all-in-one super app where you can listen to all of your news, entertainment, anything you want, podcasts like Good is in the Details, and the news will be read to you in a natural human voice. You can listen to psychology, infrastructure, philosophy, history, sports. Use offer code the details for one month free premium subscription. And I'll link that in the show notes. Okay, now back to Good is in the Details. Let me take that little thread really quickly. But if you're always focused on, am I happy? Does this make me happy? Is there negativity with that? I mean, I know, you know, with mindfulness, you're just supposed to, you know, well, are you being, are you this, are you that? If you're overly focused on happiness or sadness, does does that self-perpetuate? I, I don't know. Seth, what are your thoughts? Yes. No, that's, I think that's exactly the right question, Rudy. And I agree with, I think, what you were alluding to, which is that that type of constantly taking our emotional pulse is not, it's counterproductive. There are a lot of studies showing that, you know, there are different paths to happiness. One is more of a, as you were suggesting, kind of hedonic focus of like, you know, is this good for me or bad for me? Do I like this or not like it? Am I happy or am I sad? And if it's in the plus column, then I'm okay. And if it's in the minus column, then things are bad and I can't be happy. And there's a very different approach going way back, I guess, to Aristotle, at least. It's focused more on meaning and purpose. And, and am I having a life where I'm doing what's important to me? And it sounds like, Gwendolyn, that's what you were suggesting from earlier generations. There's more of that that kind of focus, less on like, well, how am I doing? Do I feel like doing this? What's going to make me happy? 
And maybe I have to wonder what the different emotional tones were like, you know, for earlier generations on average versus ours. And, and I can imagine, you know, if you're not, if you're sort of overriding your own awareness of your well-being and just kind of plugging away, then maybe we're, maybe a person's missing out to some extent. But maybe there's also a kind of peace in that, that I don't have to constantly be figuring out, like, well, could I be doing something that's going to make me happier? <laughs> and maybe there's a freedom there. Something I wanted to ask, though it's brought up in your book, and Rudy's going to love this too, but this idea of releasing control. So what does it mean to release control in a healthy way, but you also still want to be aware of what you can control? Like the seven habits of highly effective people, I remember it was the first thing was be aware of what you can control and then work from there. Um, and then there's the other side of it, which of the same coin is that you have to release control of the things that are outside of your control. So what does releasing control do for somebody? And what does that look like? Mm. Yeah, these ideas are, they're a little tricky, because the words themselves are limited. So something like release control can sound like just, you know, whatever happens, let it happen, like take your hands off the steering wheel, and then see what the car does. <laughs> but, the way I use that expression, it's more about releasing the like, ultimate outcome. We have a certain amount of control and a really important element of control over a lot of things. For example, how you spend your time, uh, what you do for a career, the way you treat other people. But you can't ultimately control what happens. So health is a good example. You can release control of your health and still do as many healthy things for yourself as you can. But just because you do doesn't mean you're not going to get cancer doesn't mean that something awful is not going to happen. And rather than trying to stamp out every last bit of uncertainty, like, well, I have to be able to control everything, which is truly a, a setup for misery, but to focus on what we can control and then say, like, ultimately, I don't know what's going to happen. That's not something I have to worry about. It's a good way of saying it. I, I'm actually obsessed with control. It, it probably leaks into all of my like fiction and non-fictional writing. I am a self-proclaimed control freak. And that's where I think where a lot of my mental problems come from. But what I'm trying to release is, you know, you some people like, to, you know, I don't have rabbit's foot, so I don't have that type of stuff. But I do think a lot of people have these like lucky charms because they rub it three times or, you know, this is very popular in sports. If they shoot a ball a certain way, it'll either go in or, or, or because they didn't do it the right way. That kind of magical thinking. What I try to do is try to release all magical thinking from like having an impact on what ultimately happens and just kind of accepting that like, hey, I did my best. And, and if it doesn't happen, I can do better next time. How's that sound, Seth? Yeah, I think that's very healthy to be able to let go. Of it. I mean, it reminds me of what people have described with really successful golfers. Each shot is just about that shot and whatever happened before, you know, whether it's good shot or a bad shot, it's truly irrelevant. All you're doing at that point, you have a single shot you're, you're hit, hitting. It's only ever the one that you're working on. I, I think th this is related. I don't know how close this is to what you were describing, Gwendolyn, I think a, a thing that trips us up a lot is the assumption that our expectations for how things are going to go is the way things ought to go. We have mm -hmm. you know, certain beliefs about the tra trajectories of our lives, you know, what they're going to look like. Or I would I would notice this a lot watching uh, like my favorite sports teams play, and I would think like, oh, you know, they've got bases on, no outs. They're going to get at least two runs this inning, and then they're going to be tied up, and it all feels like it's going to be inevitable, and it's going to be great, and we're going to win. And then somebody strikes out and they get a double play and the inning's over and they're still down 3-2. Like, oh, man. 
the math didn't quite work out there, but you get the point. <laughs> but none of none of my predictions had anything to do with reality. They were all just fantasies that my brain made up. But you know, whether it's about sports or our health or our relationships or whatever, it's so not just easy, but I think habitual for us to mistake our fantasies about what's going to happen, you know, based on just our hopes and our previous experience and where it looks like things are going, to mistake that for what is what's right or what should happen. And that then if things deviate that from that, we think, well, something's gone wrong. It's like there's a glitch in the universe. Like, well, this wasn't supposed to happen. So Seth, so that ties to something that I've been focused on a whole bunch of times before. And I think I brought it up in this episode, expectations. How do we learn to temper expectations? Yeah. Like that's the number one thing that I am trying to work on in my life right now. I'm very focused on it. What's the best advice you can give? Hmm. Well, as always, it seems like awareness is the best place to begin. Maybe beginning each day, just being aware of, you know, what are my expectations for this day? You know, it's it's interesting, Rudy, because I think it's it's good to let go both of, you know, negative expectations like, oh, today's going to suck or, you know, I'm going to screw up this project today or this person's going to let me down. But, you know, not to replace those with equally kind of fantastical positive predictions like, oh, you know, I'm going to get all these things done today or everything's going to go my way. And so to start each day with more of a kind of openness and a real receptivity, you know, like bringing, I imagine like a, a trick-or-treater coming up to the door, you know, with their bag open and and they're ready to receive. And so we can, you know, kind of have a similar, a similar approach to each day. Like, all right, let me, let me see if I'm willing, if I'm able to open to whatever this day brings. Even if we don't like it, at least we'll be in a much better position, I think, to respond to those things. I am going to stick with that idea. Start every day with a trick or as a trick. Rudy, Rudy, start every morning like a kid with trick or treating. <laughs> I think that's my favorite part. I absolutely love that idea. I love it, especially since Halloween's my favorite holiday. But how does that pair then, Seth, with mm. when you're talking to like very successful people, very mm. successful entrepreneurs, people that have done amazing things? And they say, well, I visualized this happening and I expected this to happen. And I was always positive and that's what kept me going. Failure was not an option, like that kind of stuff. Like how does that pair up with like people who live normal everyday lives? Right. Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think we can do both of those. I think we can visualize the way we want things to go and, you know, maybe tell ourselves if someone's into this that, you know, it's already happened and now I just have to wait for it to manifest itself or, you know, however we think about it without mistaking that intention and that practice that in somehow the world owes us what we've already claimed or that things have to work out that way or else I must not have, you know, said it right or I should have spun around two times instead of once. Or I always want to try to uh, see if there's a way to reconcile things that seem like they're in conflict. Well, how can I be goal-directed and yet let go of control? But I, I think we can do both. I think we can just hold those things, still hold them lightly, even while, like setting out on a voyage, on a ship. You're going to have a very clear sense of, you know, the compass bearing that you want to follow and the speed you need to use and, you know, all kinds of things. You're going to pack all your provisions and you're going to make allowances for the unexpected, you know, weather, sicknesses. That's really maybe the art 
of living a good life is being able to do both of those, to really live with intention and, and also with openness. In today's day and age, especially with social media, we're constantly presenting our best selves. And it's like, that's what you're supposed to do. Then it's just driving more stress for everybody who hops on. And we seem to be so caught up in image versus character. That's something I've been interested mm -hmm. in, image versus character, acting as though they're the same thing and they're not. I am just wondering what it was like for you with your background. You're a father, husband. What is that like to be vulnerable enough and aware enough to put this book out there where you're like, I was suffering, this is the pain, and this is how I worked through it. You know, what? what is that like to go ahead and publish and put out there, hey, look, I was suffering and I needed to work it out. What was going through your mind through that process? Mm. Yeah, it, it was a long process. So, you know, a lot of different things at different times. But I, I think it all began just with a realization that... I lived for quite a while as a therapist and actually, you know, before therapy, I think I just have a very strong tendency to want to portray myself just you know, reflexively and automatically as someone who is kind of squared away, like on top of things, taking care of things, not psychologically disturbed in any way. I don't think there's anybody who's exactly like those things. But I realized I was, I was hiding so much of myself in a way that wasn't helpful to me, but also not helpful to other people. You know, who does it help for someone to have a false impression of you? But they probably sensed, you know, like I suggested to Rudy earlier, you know, these things seep out around the edges. So people probably even know anyway, there's something going on with that guy. I don't know what it is. There's something. There's something. Once I realized I was really struggling first physically, and then, you know, when I fell into a depression, part of me just got sick, I think, of sick from and sick of holding up that facade. I'm aware we don't ever entirely drop the facade and there definitely is enough, you know, of, of a deliberate kind of self-presentation that I'm aware of in the book, kind of more aware of now, especially when I first started writing the book, I was very much focused on the spiritual side of things. I think elevating those in my mind above the mental or the physical or the emotional and in a way that probably felt, based on my background, you know, felt kind of pious in a way or felt like sort of gratifying in a self-righteous kind of way. So I'm not pretending that I've, you know, dropped it all and now this is this is all me. It's shadow and everything, unfiltered. This is Seth. No, it's still, even as I'm speaking right now, there's still an element of self-presentation. But, but my goal in writing the book, my overarching goal was for what I wrote to be true. That's what I really wanted. And so again, I don't think I, I was 100% successful in that, meaning there, there are things that I, you know, and, and not even fully aware of myself that I'm sure I at some point could express more clearly, but, but it just felt like, like I had to be honest and open as I was writing. And then the book ended up being much more about me than I had kind of planned and my editor had planned. And then it just seems like you, know, you, you set out to write one book and then maybe that's the book you write, but then maybe a different book kind of wants to be written. When I would try to write the book that I thought I wanted to write, which is probably a bit more... Um, like less self-disclosing and maybe kind of more prescriptive, it would just feel dead. Like there was no energy there. It'd be frustrating to write. And like, I'm sure it would have been boring to read. But it felt like to me when I was on the right path with writing that I felt a real emotional connection to it. Like I remember some like, oh my God, like that time when I was, you know, lying on the floor and, you know, feeling the vibrations of the piano as my wife was playing. Like those types of things, when they struck me, I thought like, ah, this this feels like the right thread to pursue. But then once the book came out, when it was about to come out, I was like, oh shit, what did I say in there? And like, who's going to read this? And oh man, like I actually said those things. All right. But what was I going to do at that point? You know, When you're open in this book, I'll give you one example that really 
hit home with me. And it was a description of you needed to get some work done and your child was crying and yeah. you were frustrated by the crying because you're like, I just got to get this work done. And that has happened to me. And I felt this relief when you described mm. it, because I've been in that position. But I think that sometimes as parents, maybe maybe it has to do with being a woman where it's like you're supposed to be able to wear these different hats and do it flawlessly and be able to get the work done and then happily go and hold your child. And that, <laughs> that no, that's not human. And so when I read that, I felt... I was reminded of sometimes when I've just thought I need to get one more thing done and then my daughter needs me and there's this frustration of why now I just have to do this, but I've never been vocal about it. I've never expressed it. I didn't know that other people went through that. And so when I read that, I like really, really appreciated the vulnerability. It's like you've got part memoir, part Mm. therapy in here that I think is a really lovely, lovely combination. Mm, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. And I'm glad you you recognized some of your own experience in there. Because I I think that's, I'm guessing as parents, that's probably universal, you know, that that experience of like, I just want to like, yeah, yeah, I want to, I will. But like, why now? Why can you just give me like two more minutes? I just want to finish this thought or this this email or whatever. Yes. Yes. And then I feel like an ass because she's this beautiful blessing and joy. And I think I'm not supposed to ever feel like I want some of my time back. Uh, So I I feel this push and pull where like, she's just this most beautiful being. And then here I am being upset at her for being, you know, her age and I want to get something done. And it's like, no, you got to put that off and take care of her. But I will say her, she's three and a half. I will say her being in my life you know, I'm, I'm an older parent. So I lived all my life thinking I wouldn't have children and just lived mm. one way. And having her in my life has actually forced me to be it more mindful and in the present moment, because yeah. the way I would measure a good day before her probably had to do with productivity. Right. And then after her, it was like uh, the measurement of a good day is she's alive. I'm alive. Mm. <laughs> like We went for a walk. We enjoyed the day. It's yeah. She puts me directly in the present moment because her needs mm. are immediate. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think once we know about mindful acceptance, this idea that I can just open to my life as it is, then I know for myself, I find it easy to then slip into a judgment of myself. Like, why am I not open and accepting what's happening right now? Why am I not just, you know, completely calm about my child, you know, interrupting the work I was trying to do? And I always think of this, it was the first couple months of having our first child, our son, when he was born, it had taken us a long, kind of a long road to having a baby. So I was, you know, trying to trying to, you know, walk him back to sleep, like around our dining room in the middle of winter, and he's probably four weeks old. And I had this moment of frustration. I'm just like, oh, like why, like why won't he just go to sleep? And then I felt that judgment of like, what's wrong with me? We wanted this child so badly. How can I? But then, thankfully, something told me like what you wanted was the full experience of being a parent. And you're getting that. That includes <laughs> moments of frustration and, and irritation and impatience. And maybe that's just, that's part of the whole deal. If we can include in our mindful acceptance, the fact that we struggle to be mindfully accepting. Yeah, that's that's part of it. Just keep zooming back, just making room for all of our experience, whatever it is. Then again, I, we, we've come up, we've, we've talked about this several times, but the idea of freedom, there's just such liberation in that broader opening and allowing. I want to wrap up with this question. What is a concrete step or steps to being mindful? Like, let's say somebody is stressed out in a moment. They're having a Rudy moment. (laughs) Mm. And what is something where we can, like a question we could ask ourselves or get back center, something we could do? 
I think often, often what's presented is, you know, how can I, what can I do to make this stressful feeling stop? Or what can I do to calm down? And there are, you know, there are things you can do that might help in that way. But the mindful approach that I really like myself and that I like to share with others is, again, more about expanding the frame rather than fighting what's happening now. Like, okay, how can I breathe in a way that makes those symptoms go down? I can hack my parasympathetic nervous system. Again, that can work and be helpful. But maybe instead to do what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, kind of as a bookend here, to tap into the body. Like what's actually happening in my body? What's actually happening right now? Like as I describe this with you, I mean, anyone who's listening can do this right now. Like what's actually going on in your body? Like I feel certain sensations in my hands. I feel my heart is you know, pounding more than I'm aware of when I'm, I'm not in a kind of conversation that I you know, feel like I want to be on for. And just noticing those things and allowing them to be exactly as they are, it can have a really profound effect. Sometimes it, it you know, can even turn down some of that alarm response so that we feel calmer. But that's not necessarily the goal. It's more about just allowing things to be what they are. And in that allowing, in that allowing, there can be such a peace that is, it's kind of on a different plane than what's happening on our more, the level that we're more used to paying attention to. Because we might still be experiencing the turmoil, the uncertainty, the, uh, the upset, but we're not as upset by them. We're not as thrown by them because we're allowing them to be as they are. Yep, that's what's happening right now. I'm having a tough time. I would start there. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalski and Rudy Sallow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Thank you, Dr. Gillahan, for joining the pod. And you can check out Dr. Gillahan's work in the show notes. He also has his own podcast, courses, books, everything you want. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, it's Good is in the Details Pod. And same thing on Facebook. If you'd like to partner with the show or sponsor an episode, get in touch. Good is in the Details Pod at gmail.com. If you'd like extra content, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. We've got a book club and you can support this pod for as little as $2 a month. Get a shout out from us. Okay, until next time. Bye.